Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our review of Michelle Smith's testimony. Ms. Smith was Libby Murdoch's caregiver. We also examined the questioning of SLED crime scene investigator Kristen Moore. In this installment, we begin our look at the testimony of William McElveen, a friend of Paul Murdoch's. That's all coming up right after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. It is the afternoon of February 6th. 2023, day 9 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, prosecutor Savannah Goud had sled investigator Kristen Moore confirm that she collected a large blue raincoat from a closet within the home of Libby Murdoch, Alex Murdoch's mother. As we begin today, the prosecutor calls William McElveen to the stand. Mr. McElveen is in his 20s. He sports short brown hair and wears a gray patterned blazer over a powder blue button-down dress shirt. Prosecutor David Fernandez handles the questioning for the prosecution. He begins by asking the witness about his biographical background and about his friendship with Paul Murdoch. Mr. McElveen, how are you doing today? Doing well, how are you? Doing well. If you would, tell the jury a little bit about yourself. Uh, where'd you grow up and uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, went to AC4 High School. Went to uh, the Citadel after high school. Um, Graduated there in 2017, went to get my master's at Clemson, graduated in 2018, moved back to Charleston, worked for a CPA firm for a while, and now I'm in finance for a home builder. For where, sorry? For a home building company. And uh, where do you, what area generally do you currently live? I live in Charleston now. Mr. McElveen, you, uh, were you friends with Paul Murdoch? I was, good friends. All right, well tell us a little bit about when y'all first met. So I lived in Esto Beach every summer with my granddad and uh, when I was growing up. And he was, he was in Edisto all the time, so we just became close. Edisto's a small town. Uh, not many young people live there, so the young people kind of stick together. Uh, we both love fishing, hanging out, so we just get, became good friends through that. So you would you would spend the summers in Edisto? That's correct. Yep. And what kind of things would you do throughout those summers? Hang out, work, fish. What kind of jobs did you get? I uh, worked multiple jobs there for five-ish summers. Um, worked at the marina a good bit, a restaurant there called the Sea Cow. I worked at a realty company as an inspector and uh, at the bylo as well. And I think you just said that you met Paul about the high school years? That's correct. Okay. Tell us a little about your friendship. How did it, uh, how did it start and how did it kind of evolve? Uh, it started just kind of common interest in fishing and hanging out. Just a really fun guy, so we just hung out more and more. Um, and I started going to Moselle, hanging out with his whole family. Uh, they kind of took me in and, and just evolved from there. So did you get to know him pretty well? Yes, I did. Did you get to know his family fairly well? Yes, I did. 
tell us a little bit about Paul. Uh, Paul was just a really fun guy, just like the life of the party kind of guy. Um, everybody that really knew him loved him. I don't know, just a great guy, very loyal friend, kind of, the kind of guy that's always there when you need him. Was he uh, sort of a responsive friend? I mean, if you reached out to him, would he respond back? Yes, he was very responsive. And how did you primarily communicate with him? What, what means? Cell phone normally. Yeah. Phone calls or texts? A little bit of both, but mostly phone calls. He was a big phone caller. Well, I guess that, I, tell us a little bit about Paul's cell phone use. Did he, did he like to use his cell phone? He did like to use his cell phone. How would you describe it? His use of cell phone. Um, he used cell phone a lot. Like, kind of every time he had a road trip or anything like that, he would use it to call all of his friends and just check in on everybody. Uh, and I can speak for almost all of his friends. We get a phone call from him almost every day. And then we use text a lot, Snapchat, that kind of stuff. Was he on his phone quite a bit? Yes. To the point where it was, was it very noticeable to his friends? Uh, yes. Did you have an opportunity to get to know Maggie Myrtle? Yes, I did. All right, well, tell us about her. What was your observations about her or your, uh, the, whatever friendship y'all had? As Mr. McElveen responds to this question, Alex Murdoch rocks in his seat, his glasses resting on the edge of his nose. Uh, she was just a super sweet lady. Kind of always trusted Paul when he was with me. She would know he's staying out of trouble. I don't know, she just treated all of Paul's friends like they were her kids and just very nicely. And did she approve of you hanging out with Paul? Yes. Okay. Tell us about that. About what? Sorry. Well, did she did she ever comment to you about how she liked you hanging out with Paul? Yeah, yeah, she did. And did you have an opportunity to get to know um, Alex Murdoch? I did. All right. And uh, what were your perceptions of him? Kind of same way the rest of the family just took everybody in, all Paul's friends. Um, he was kind of the the dad of all of our friend group. Same way the rest of the family. Yeah. And uh, is he here today? Yes. Did you identify him? Yes. In the brown jacket. Did you ever get to go out to the family property on Moselle? Yes, I did. Um, how often would you have have you been out there visiting? Um, probably thirty or forty times. Okay. Did you spend the night when you went out there? Yes, only. Tell us a little bit about the property. What kind of things would y'all do out there? Um, did a lot of hunting. Also, probably more than hunting, just hanging out, just enjoying each other's company, hanging out. Cool. So you said about, what, 30, 30 to 40? Is that what you said? That's correct. Prosecutor Fernandez next asks the witness about his familiarity with the Murdoch's Moselle Road property. All right, now that the property, was there a, um, was there a main house location? Uh, there was, yes. All right, and was there a secondary location for uh, kennels in a, in a shed? Yes, there was. All right, did you spend much time out at that secondary location? Uh, good day, yeah. All right, describe that area for us, if you would. What was, what was out there? And what would you do out there? Um, so it's like a big shed hangar that side comes up. We'd all hang out over there, and there's the dog kennels. And then um, a few years back, they built the shed across from the hangar. And uh, it was just a good place to get away from the main house and just hang out and talk. If you all were visiting, if you were visiting Moselle, would you spend most of your time hanging around at that, at that shed, the hangar area? Uh, depends. For, for large groups, we would have people over there more often if it was just me and Paul and the family would just hang out of the house. Uh, you mentioned kennels. Um, were there a number of dogs on the property? There were, yes. Okay. Did you, do you remember them? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, tell us about the dogs you remembered. And, and what, well, first of all, were there kind of sep two different kinds of dogs between family dogs or working dogs? Yes. Okay. Did you get to know any of the family dogs? Yes. 
Who were they? Tell us about those dogs. Uh, Bubba is a yellow lab, and then Bourbon, brown lab, and Grady is a black lab. And they were all pretty uh, relaxed, would hang out around the house mostly, but I don't know. They were just good dogs. Did they, uh, and when you slept over there, did they? Did the dogs sleep at the house location, the main house? Uh, yes, they did. The uh, family dogs did. The, the family dogs. Yes. And then there were some working dogs that, would, where would they stay, the working dogs? They would stay in the kennels by the shed. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Prosecutor David Fernandez continues his questioning of William McElveen regarding the geography of the Murdoch's Moselle Road property. So uh, the Moselle location, when you when you started going there, did it have one or two entrances and exits? Uh, two entrances. Okay. And describe the two entrances. Um, so one was the main entrance that was uh, had like brick pillar outside, and that would just kind of go to the house and not really pass anything, go through some trees. The other entrance would be uh, next to the cabin, right behind the shed, and that entrance can kind of go multiple ways when you go in there, but um, that passes by the cabin and, and uh, the sheds and then goes to the house as well. With that entrance, is that where the, um, the mailbox was located? I can't remember the mailbox is. I believe those are the pillars at the main entrance, maybe. Is that the location near the dog kennels, that second exit? Yes, dog? yes. Was there um, one exit that was used more often than the other? We probably more often use the one by the sheds. Had you ever, if there was ever a time where someone was leaving the house and you all were down at the kennels, what was the normal course of action for that person, whether it was Mr. Mrs. Murdoch? Typically they would come check on us, drive by and just say hey. But that was normal? I would say it's normal, yes. Did you, um, with Paul, were you guys close enough where you shared your location with each other? We did. Find my Tell us what that means. On is, is this an iPhone? Yeah, it's uh, the app on Find My Friends on iPhone. And uh, what does it mean to actually share your location with someone? Just means any point in time you can open your phone and see where all your friends are and pinpoint their exact location. <clears throat> Did you do that with many people? Uh, probably five or ten. Do you know if Paul did that with many people? Don't think Paul did with many people. No. When you spent time down at the uh, hangar and the kennels. Was it common for firearms to be stored down there or left down there? Uh, not common, no. In those times, you said you've been about there about 30 to 40 times. Did you? I mean, how would you explain common? Was it was it something that you frequently see or not frequently? I can't remember a time I've seen firearms left at the sheds. Prosecutor Fernandez next pivots to asking Mr. McElveen about his interactions with members of the Murdoch family in the days before the murders. When's the last time you uh, saw Paul Murdoch? June 5th, I think, two days before. That weekend before yes. Monday? Yes. June 7th? Tell us about that weekend. Um, I can't remember much. We were hanging out at my friends' houses. I think we went to a bar called the Windjammer in Charleston, but I don't remember much from the weekend. Did you see uh, Did you see him on Sunday? Or? do not think I saw him on Sunday, no. Did he stay at your house that weekend? 
I don't think so. My friends and I were talking about that. We can't remember if it was my house or someone, one of my other friends' houses. Would, would Paul commonly stay at, when he was visiting Charleston, would he, would he crash at people's houses? Yes, he normally stayed at our house. But you don't remember if that particular time he did or not? Don't remember. How were you uh, kind of told about the murders? How'd you find out? So I missed a few calls in the middle of the night that I didn't wake up to. Um, the next morning, my roommate came to my room and told me. And your roommate is who? Uh, Frank Chapman. And uh, he told you what happened? Yes. Did you make it out to the property at all? Uh, yes, the next day I went out to the property. So the 8th of June? Yes. And walk us through what, what happened out there when you made it to the property. Where did you go? Uh, we just went to the main house and uh, just went to see the family and be with everybody. A lot of friends and family were, were there? Good bit of friends family, yes. Did you attend the funeral as well? I did, yes. Any further questions? With that, Prosecutor Fernandez concludes his questioning of Mr. McElveen. Defense Attorney Jim Griffin rises for his cross-examination of the witness. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Mr. McElveen, where are you from? Uh, from Columbia, South Carolina. And are you friends with Wills Chapman and Frank Chapman and Will Loving? And I am, yes. Oh, that crowd? Okay. And so you met with Paul, I take it, down at Edisto with, with the Columbia group? Yep. And, and you became really good friends of Paul's, correct? Correct. And I think you described him as a loyal friend, did you not? Correct. And you became close not only to Paul, but to, to the entire uh, Murdoch family, right? Correct. You know, there, there, there are houses that kids, teenagers, young adults congregate at their parents' house. Was the Murdoch house at Edisto one of those houses where people would congregate? It was, yes. And, uh, and you spent a lot of time at Edisto there in the summers? I did, yes. And you spent time around Alec and Paul and Buster and Maggie, is that correct? That's correct. And, and how would you describe Alec's relationship with Paul? Um, they had a very good relationship. They were kind of best friends in a way. They were close? Very close. And how, from your observation, how would you describe Alec's relationship with Maggie? From everything I've seen, it was great too. I mean, nothing, I've never seen anything negative. Alex Murdoch again appears to rock in his seat and wipe at his nose and his eyes as Mr. McElveen responds to Jim Griffin's questions. They like for Paul to be to hang around with you and right? That's correct. I mean I, I think you were asked about that. You strike me as someone who's very responsible. Did they, they did they like that about you? You think? They did, I think so. And you strike me as someone who who if you're down at Moselle would not leave guns laying around. You wouldn't do that, would you? Probably not, no, sir. Okay, so when you were with Paul, you know, hunting, you were responsible enough to be sure that guns got put away properly, correct? Correct. You were um, asked about some of their dogs. Um, actually, Paul had a puppy, didn't he know? He did. You have that puppy now? I do. What's his name? His name's Goose. How's he doing? He's doing great. Glad to hear that. The um, And you describe uh, three labs, Bubba the yellow lab, Verdon the brown lab, and Grady the black lab? That's correct. And, and when you were at Moselle, I mean, these, were the, these were family dogs, and they stayed up at the, at the residence? That's right. Now, over the residence, they had an invisible electric fence around the house, correct? Uh, I didn't know about it, but possibly so. Okay. Well, was Bubba, um, was Bubba a handful that just take off sometimes? Uh, sometimes. Right. And, and you don't know, um, when was the last time you were, you were at Moselle? I can't remember. 
Was it in 2021? Most likely. Were the dogs there? Can't remember. When you um, heard that Paul had been murdered, um, did, did Will Loving come down to, to, to your house in Charleston, or was it another friend's house? Uh, Will went to another friend's, but I think he came to our house later in the day. Um, but we had a group at our house as well. And then you went to Moselle? Um, then the next day we went to Moselle. Would that have been on that Wednesday? The murders were uh, Monday night, you know, late. So, yes, I guess that Wednesday went to Moselle. So not, not the Tuesday, but the Wednesday. I believe that's correct. And who all went with you? I think Frank Chapman went with me. And that might be it. And who was there when you got there? Any other friends of Paul there when you got uh, there? Rogan was there and Nolan was there. Uh, and what was... I had a couple more, but I'm not sure. Okay. What was Alec Murdoch's demeanor when you saw him? Sad, crying. Did y'all hug? We did hug, yeah. And did he... He was crying? Yes. And did you go back over to Moselle after the funeral? Uh, yes, I did. And were there a bunch of Paul's friends there? There were, yes. And can you tell me, was Alec, she still crying, hugging all the Paul's friends? He was still crying. I mean, there, there were so many people there that it's kind of a line to see him, but from the little bit I saw him, yes. I don't have anything further. Anything further? Thank you. You may step down. After Mr. McElveen leaves the courtroom, Judge Clifton Newman calls for a brief break. Before the jury returns from that break, defense attorney Dick Harpudlian makes a motion to Judge Clifton Newman, seeking to bar prosecutors from introducing testimony related to findings of gunshot residue on the blue jacket that was discovered in a bedroom closet in the home of the defendant's mother. The state intends on introducing evidence of GSR gunshot residue on that blue jacket. We would object to any such testimony under a 403 analysis, prejudice outweighs the probative, and I'm struggling to find out, uh, to figure out what the probative is. So I, I'm in this, I mean, I think it's factually driven. I think the state needs to give you some sense of what it proves. A jacket, I might point out, no one has put in the hands of the defendant. And the tarp that they found, they never tested for GSR, blood, DNA, and everyone says tarp, that's a jacket. And I don't know how you connect it to the defendant. If the, if the prejudice far outweighs any probative value in that it's not been connected to him, even circumstantially not connected to him, the only witness to it, Shelley, who I've talked to a couple times, indicated that was not what he had in his hands. Um, and uh, she'd never seen it before and never seen it with him. So, Your Honor, we can post it under 403 analysis. Prosecutor Creighton Waters responds, uh, yes, Your Honor. I think if you listen to the testimony of uh, Ms. Smith in totality, uh, first of all, she identified a picture uh, where she said, yeah, that looks like what it was. It was balled up. And that picture, of course, was then identified by Ms. Moore as where they recovered the actual raincoat, which, of course, she was is a very, very large raincoat and very easily could be identified uh, as a tarp. I think uh, any issues that Mr. Harpulian wants to make, uh, he can certainly argue those to the jury, uh, but the connection has been established between Ms. Smith and that particular raincoat and looking at the picture and saying, that's yeah, that looks like what I saw. Uh, additionally, with that other tarp, she also testified that there was no silver on that tarp. And if you look at the picture of that other tarp, uh, it, it is uh, half uh, blue and half silver. So it's a very... So, Your Honor, and I... 
put them up on the elbow or hand them up, whichever you prefer. But we have uh, States Exhibit 224, and this was a tarp you can see with a lot of silver on it. But States Exhibit 411, uh, Ms. Smith identified as that's what it looked like. You can see that balled up thing right there, and that is ultimately the rain jacket, which as you saw, uh, particularly on redirect uh, with Ms. Gowd, um, you know, this is extremely large, very easily could look like a tarp, and when she balled it up, Ms. Smith said, yeah, that's what it looked like. So I think there's been enough of a nexus established as to the probative value, and what you'll, of course, hear is, is that uh, from the GSR experts is that very high levels of GSR uh, were found within the inside, the inside of that uh, blue rain jacket, which again is this big and, and very, very long. Uh, again, Mr. Harpudley can argue to the jury whatever inferences he wants to, but I think the state has established enough of a nexus to not only make it relevant, but to make its probative value not substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. Harpudlian rebuts the prosecution's argument for the defense. I think he either misunderstood or is misquoting what Ms. Smith said. She said, when she was shown that photo, she said, it's the same color or like the same color. She never, ever, ever said, that's what I saw him with as he came through the door. He put, and by the way, she found the tarp. That couldn't be the tarp because um, the tarp was found uh, downstairs across a chair, um, which is what she said he walked in with. So the tarp in the box obviously isn't it. And, I mean, she said the tarp that he came in with was the one that was on the chair when he came down, not the coat. All she ever said was that blue coat, it balled up, appears to be the same color. No one has ever said that she saw him or anybody saw him with that jacket. And I would also point out um, that, I hate to say this, but I would suspect there are a number of rain jackets in, in this area of the state that have GSR on them, in them, around them. So there's no, no one that says he had possession. All she ever said was, it, it, by the way, it was all balled up. All she said was, it looks like the same color. So a picture of the rain jacket. That is not what he was carrying when he came in. Judge Clifton Newman renders his decision on the issue. All right. The item is in evidence. The witness testified as to the location of the item of evidence and where she believed that it was placed by the defendant. It's in evidence. Obviously, the state contends that it has some inculpatory evidence on it. This is a circumstantial case, and circumstantially, proof can may be offered on that on the issue of whether or not this uh, gunshot residue or whatever it might be can be traced to the defendant. And I overrule the objection. And I find it's the evidence offered is more probative than prejudicial, though I do not believe a probative versus prejudicial analysis is required on this issue. But to the extent that it is, I find that it's more probative than prejudicial, and I deny the motion to prevent the state from offering testimony. And with Judge Clifton Newman overruling the objection, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we review the testimony of Natasha Moody, an employee for Bank of America, and Jamie Hall, an evidence custodian. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.